continue our study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, our sermon series. We're presently looking at the questions that deal with the Eighth Commandment, so we're looking at the Eighth Commandment. Let's confess these three questions together. They begin with question 73, if you have your catechism. So let's uh, confess the answers to these in unison. Question 73, which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Question 75, what is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. So this is now the third sermon on the Eighth Commandment. In the introductory sermon, we considered the fact that God owns all things, but has given things to us to possess. Otherwise, it would not be possible for us to steal or give if there was no such thing as private ownership. I talked to you about how it is that he owns everything, and yet we also, in a secondary way, own things. Use the example of something like if you're at work and they give you a desk to use at work, you say, that's my desk, and you're responsible for the desk, and you take care of it, and it is your desk, and no one else uses your desk because it's your desk, and you have your things on your desk, but it doesn't mean, since it's your desk, that you can do whatever you want with it, that you can use it for firewood if you decide to, or that you could take it home and set it up in your house. It's given to you with the ownership. The ultimate ownership is from the the owner of the company, and then the uh, secondary ownership is yours. So it is with all the things that we have in this world. God is the ultimate owner. We own it in a secondary way. It's to be used for His honor and glory. So uh, we, we looked at that last time. We looked at how we also ought to respect our neighbor's property so as not to do anything that would unjustly diminish his wealth, that would take away from things that are rightly his. Saw that we should not cheat him or steal from him or be careless with his property. This week, we're going to look at how we ought to respect our own wealth. Now, that might seem a little bit unusual because we say, well, we don't have any problem with that. But the truth is that we actually do have problems with respecting the things that God has given us. We need to actually learn to rejoice in our own property that God has given to us and to use it in a rightful way. For our scripture reading, I have selected 1 Timothy 6. We will be particularly focusing on the little phrase in verse 17 where it says that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, the Old Testament scripture reading that we had earlier very much pertains to what we're talking about, too, because God talked about how he gave them houses and lands and houses that were filled with good things and olive groves and all sorts of things that he gave to them and how they were to remember that they came from God and to use them for him. So, When we look at this, we're saying that, okay, God has given us great riches and we're supposed to use them in a way that pleases him. He's given them to us to enjoy. And don't try to say, as we think about that, that that instructions don't apply to you 
is they're given in Timothy because they're talking to people that are rich. Say, well, well, that's not me. Because we are rich. If we live at this time in this society, in this part of the world, we have great wealth compared to almost anyone that's ever lived. And we have flush toilets, we have hot and cold water, we have food, we have clothing, we have houses and all, all sorts of things. We're, we're people that are very abundantly blessed. We even have telephones and things like that, that and, and smartphones even. We, ha- we have all sorts of things. We cannot say that we're impoverished. We're rich. This chapter also has some other things to say to us about our possessions that are related to rejoicing in our own wealth. But the main thing we're looking at is that little phrase. But here, I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who having believe, who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness and contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. For you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they, may be, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what is committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. 
That was the word of God. May the Lord grant to us that we may receive it as the word of God with all reverence. Did you notice how Paul tells us in verses 6 through 10 that we should be content with what we have and how he warns us that the inordinate love of money ruins our relationship with God. And then how in verse 17, he warns those who have a lot, as I say, as we all do in this wealthy nation, that we must not trust in our riches, but in God. We aren't waiting each day to see if we're going to have food for the day. We, we have so much in this society so we can trust in our riches instead of God. And note how he says that we should enjoy the riches that God has given to us. And again, that's our focus today, especially that you should rejoice in the good things that God has given you, the material blessings that God has given you. <clears throat> so, uh, so I'm going to show you some particular things that will help you to be able to enjoy what God has given you, to enjoy your wealth. First of all, you must learn to look at wealth as a real blessing from God, not something that is sort of evil or something that you need to apologize about having, that apologize about having nice things. God made material things for us because we are material beings. We are living souls, which means that we have both a body and a spirit. A soul is a being that has a body and a spirit. God is not a soul. God is a spirit. The angels are spirits. But we and the animals have what is nephesh in Hebrew, a soul, a living soul. And so we're composed of both body and spirit. You need to understand that God meant to make us this way. It wasn't an accident or it wasn't an element of the curse that he condemned us and gave us bodies or something like that. He did not intend to make us pure spirits without bodies or that we should ever be such. The Greeks, Plato in particular, were wrong to think that having a body was an undesirable thing and something that we should wish to escape. It is understandable how they might think this because in this sinful world, many of the wrongs come about from the desires of our, our body and the weakness of our flesh, our appetites. And we have problems with our bodies because of the curse as well. They, they wear down and they have sickness and injuries and things like that. But if we had not fallen into sin, we wouldn't have these problems with our bodies. And after the resurrection at the last day, our bodies are going to be restored. These self-same bodies will be raised again with perfection and immortality. Consider what a blessing it is that God made us material creatures. It was extremely kind of Him. It was even ingenious of Him. In creating us, He came up with the whole idea of making a material world. There was nothing at all like it until He made it. He devised it as a way to give us pleasure from his hand. In other words, we have bodies that can touch and hear sounds and see and taste and smell. We can have sexual relations with our bodies and all kinds of things. It is really quite a remarkable and wonderful thing that he made us the way he did. And then he filled the world with all sorts of marvelous material things for us to enjoy. Enjoy. 
in a way of kindness to us, to things that we can possess and share, give away, things that we can receive. Things are a blessing for us and a way for us to bless one another. What do we often do? We make a meal for someone. We give them some money that they need. Things like that. This is all part of his perfect creation. It was all the way that he made it even before the fall. So God gives us material things to bless us. When you have this perspective, then you have a basis to do what Paul tells you to do in 1 Timothy 6.17, to enjoy all the things that God richly gives to us. I have observed that many Christians' joy of God's material gifts is hampered because they have mixed the platonic idea that the material world is somehow evil. Have you ever noticed how those who have a beautiful home with lots of nice things in it will feel like they need to apologize for it? (laughs) They feel guilty for possessing nice things. This goes all the way back to the attitudes that were formed about sex and food in the early church that were warned against, even in the epistle to Timothy, warned against the, the, the attitudes that were formed that were wrong, that these, that these, as if these things were wrong, possessing them, not because they were scriptural attitudes, but because of the influence of Greek philosophy that I was talking about. And today, this mentality has been reinforced by Marxism, by the Marxist mentality, which tries to pit the people who have more against those who have less, or vice versa, so that there will be a revolution, because the whole idea following Hegel, Marx taught that you want to have, you have a thesis with things set up the way they are, and then you have an antithesis with the people who rebel against that, and they overthrow the order, you have a revolution, and then out pops a beautiful synthesis that comes out of that. And uh, they want to see that that happen. So they're always trying to pit people against each other, find different ways. And it was primarily through riches and rich and poor, trying to create envy. And and that's really had an influence on us, the way that we look at wealth. We we think people that have things, are they must be bad. And of course, a lot of times they are, aren't they? Because they got it in the wrong way. But it's not necessarily so, is it? Now, of course, it is true that we should feel guilty when we have wealth that is ill-gotten or that we misuse. If you have if you have been greedy and not given generously to others, or if you have even withheld your tithes from God, then what you have is stolen. It doesn't rightly belong to you. And you should feel guilty if you've got this beautiful car that you bought when you because you didn't tithe and you were able to get something nicer because you, you, didn't, uh, you, didn't, you didn't tithe. Or if you have abused food and drink and, and tobacco and drugs and various things, you've used your wealth for sinful indulgence, then yes, you should feel guilty. Or maybe you have been so focused on increasing your wealth that you have neglected your family or neglected the care of other people. I've often told people that if I had not been converted, then I'm pretty sure that I would be divorced. It would have been divorced a long time ago because I was so focused on just materialism, wanting to have more that uh, I, wouldn't, I would have thought that I was treating my wife well just because I, I gave her stuff, you know, because <laughs> I bought nice things 
or whatever. And it probably would have driven her crazy. She would have had, you know, I would have not known why she was unhappy with me because, hey, I gave you this, I gave you that. But the problem I'm referring to is supposing that it is wrong in itself for anyone to have nice things. Okay, if we've gotten it the wrong way, yeah, it's wrong for us to have it. Greedy or, or whatever. But if we've gotten it in the right way, then it's not wrong to have nice things. If you feel that way, it makes you have an uneasy and even a guilty conscience if God has blessed you with nice things. And that guilty conscience alienates you from God. Really, if you cannot possess nice things in faith, like knowing that it's from God and that it's the right thing, then you shouldn't possess them. Because in Romans 14, it says if we can't do it in faith, if we, we have doubts that it's right, whether it's right or not, then uh, it's wrong for us, even if it's not wrong in itself. It becomes wrong when you have doubts and you keep things anyway that you don't think you should have kept. And this is one of the things that has contributed this whole attitude about things being bad to have is contributed to the apostasy of many Christian nations. After all, if you are feeling guilty about possessing what God has given you, then are you going to give thanks for it? No, you won't give thanks. And uh, are you going to, you're, you're going to be estranged from God a bit, a bit, right? Not, maybe not majorly at first, but a bit, because you feel like you're doing something that is kind of wrong in just having stuff. That will affect your prayer. It will affect your comfort. It will affect your joy in God's salvation. It will skew your judgment of other things about what's right and wrong. And if that goes on for a while, goes on from one generation to another generation, a generation will emerge that doesn't know God at all eventually. It'll be a deterioration. They will think that they have the power to get wealth and hold wealth without God's help. The thing that God warned his people about in Deuteronomy. Because see, if they don't give thanks because they feel guilty of the things they have, then they're not going to go forward with, um, with God. They'll not acknowledge God and thank Him, and He will turn them over to unbelief and corruption. The Bible shows that it is a blessing to have nice things if we receive them from God with faith and thanksgiving. The Bible shows us this in a number of ways. First, in that we have examples of godly rich men all through the Scriptures who are said to be blessed by God. Yes, there are examples of ungodly ones too, but there are people like Abraham and Job who are very rich and very godly at the same time. They were not condemned for having things. In fact, it was said to be God's blessing. In the New Testament, I mentioned this before in the, with reference to the Eighth Commandment, you had John Mark's mother who had a fine home, that she had servants that she kept in that home who helped her keep the home. And the church met in the home. It was so, such a large home that the church could meet there. And you have Philemon who had servants and who extended hospitality to Paul when he came to town. And it appears that he also had a church in his house. Second, in the Bible, in that the Bible refers to material blessings as the things that the Lord has blessed you with. For example, Deuteronomy 8 that we read, the Lord told his people that he was going to bless them with what? Material things, with vineyards and olive groves and houses filled with all good things. They are warned not against having these things, but against having these things and forgetting that they came from God 
and being thankful for these things. That's what they're warned against. 1 Timothy 4, 4-5 speaks to this when it says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Now, it's very plain in the first part of that verse to see what Paul is talking about when he says to receive it with thanksgiving. We all know what that means, that that we are to see that our wealth comes from God and we're to thank Him. Now, it's easy to understand it's not something that we always do, is it? We don't even think about it. But what does he mean when he says that our wealth is sanctified by the Word of God in prayer? Well, for something to be sanctified means that it is made holy to us. It is set apart with reference to God. You might say that something that is holy has its purpose for blessing our relationship with God, for enhancing our relationship with God somehow. So to be sanctified by the word means that we have received our wealth in ways that are pleasing to God and directed by God. And that we're also holding on to our possessions in ways that are sanctified by the word, that are pleasing to God according to his word. To be sanctified by prayer means that it is something that we have prayed for. You don't pray for the acquisition of things you steal because uh, you, you pray for things that you get in the right way. If you're, if, you're stealing, if you're robbing a bank, you don't say, oh Lord, please bless me as I go out to rob this bank and help me to be successful. But you pray for wealth that you obtain in the ways that are pleasing to God. Help me to do my work honestly and earnestly that I might receive blessing from it. For our next point, let's look at this in more detail. How are we to obtain our wealth and how are we to maintain it? What is the right way to obtain and possess our material blessings from God? First of all, we are to obtain our wealth by hard work. God appointed labor as the way to obtain the blessings of this world even before the fall. Labor didn't come about as a result of the fall. Labor came about as a result of creation. Genesis 1.28, before the fall, then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The command to subdue the earth is a call to work. It is a call to labor. God made Eden into a habitation for the first man and his wife and their descendants. And as the population grew, The plan was that they were to go forth and make new gardens and over the generations to develop things like art and science and music and technology and horticulture and all the rest. They were to make nice and pleasant things for each other to enjoy. Something as simple as preparing a meal for someone is a way that you make things for other people. You're subduing the earth. You're taking something out of the earth and then you're working with it, modifying it, preparing it so that it is a blessing to other people. Genesis 2.15 shows us that God put a hoe in Adam's hands, so to speak. 
Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The ground was made to produce things for Adam and his wife, and Adam was to manage the garden and look after it so that it would be productive. And after the fall, labor remained God's ordinance for the proper acquisition of wealth. So it was from the beginning before the fall, but it remained the way to acquire wealth after the fall. Labor was cursed, but it was still God's way to obtain the things that we need. You can see this in Genesis 3.18, where God says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. This was, of course, after the fall. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Notice, though, God repeats there that you will still get your wealth by labor. Still the same way as before the fall. The difference is that now the labor is going to be difficult. It's going, the creation will, will still produce food, but it won't always cooperate. You'll plant squash and weeds will come up instead of the squash. Or you'll plant tomatoes and they will end up being destroyed in a hailstorm just when they're about ready to be harvested. But labor is still the way to obtain wealth. Paul insists upon labor as part of the Christian life. When he calls thieves to repent, he does not tell them merely to stop stealing. He tells them to start working. Ephesians 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. The thief has not begun to do the will of God when he stops stealing. The thief does the will of God when he stops stealing and starts learning to work and to give. Some of the Thessalonians were not working when they were able. So Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.10, We urge you, brethren, that you aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. A proper walk with God means doing your own work to provide for yourself and your family. To live, you are to live in a proper calling. doesn't mean you're always working for other people outside the home or something like that. You may be working in the home but you're doing things providing for other people. You show love to your family and to your whole community by doing your own work that God has given you to do. For, a man, for the man who will not work, the apostle has these very severe words. 1 Timothy 5, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you younger folks in the congregation, you need to learn how to work now while you're young so that you will be a blessing to your family in the future. If you don't learn skills, like even in the home and in learning to labor and work hard, then you won't be a blessing to your family in the days to come. Those who are able and will not work 
are not to be supported according to the Scriptures. People think that it is the Christian thing to support anyone in need, but it's not. We're told expressly in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even, Paul says, even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So you're not supposed to give food to people that refuse to work. It's one thing when they truly cannot work because of infirmity or of some kind, but otherwise we're to insist that they do. That's how they are to get their living. You're facilitating them in their sin if they refuse to work and you provide for them. So you see that you're to acquire wealth by labor. But that's not all. You're also to preserve and maintain your wealth. Proverbs 27, 23, and 24 warns you, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. The principle here is take care of what you have or you will lose it. Don't change the oil in your car, and you're going to suffer the consequences. You will be impoverished. Don't keep a proper roof on your house, but let the roof leak down into your attic, and after a while, you're going to have many more repairs and much more damage than you had to start with. Proverbs 21.20 says, There is a desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it doesn't take care of it. The foolish man thinks that riches will last forever. So instead of appreciating and taking care of what God has given him, he squanders it. That's why we're told, and it happens all the time, that when people win the lottery, they end up worse off after a few years because they go out and they feel their riches are forever and they buy a big house and they spend up all their money, and they go into debt even with their riches. They can go into a lot more debt because they have more to start with, and then they can't pay for like their property taxes or something after a few years because they've got this big fancy house that they spent all their money on. And then they begin to have bill collectors, and they go down, down, down. They squander what they have, and they come to poverty. It's very common for people to think, these are my things, and I can do what I want with them. But that's not true. That's a lie. And we've seen that lie with other commandments too. It's the same problem we saw with the sixth and seventh commandment when people say, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. If I want to take my life or if I want to deface my body, I can do it. Or if I want to have sex with someone, whoever I want, it's my body and I can do with my body what I please. This is not true because our bodies do not ultimately belong to us. They belong to God. And the same is true of our possessions. When you don't take care of the things that God has given you, then you show ingratitude toward God. You disregard God who owns those things ultimately. You are to cherish the things that He has given you, His gifts. Even though God can provide anything, He doesn't want you to be wasteful. In John six twelve, after Jesus had multiplied the fish and the loaves to feed the 5,000, what did he command his disciples to do? To collect the leftovers. And why? He tells them why. 
gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Jesus is teaching the principle of gratitude for material things. Yes, he could multiply that bread and that fish a thousand times more if he wanted, but he wants his disciples to be grateful for what he has given them. You do not show great faith by being careless with things, by saying, oh, well, God can provide another one. No, you say that if something happens that destroys your property, you say, well, it's in God's hands, he can provide another. But if you're careless with things, then you're showing ingratitude to God for the things that he has given you. And parents, you do not, you do, not do your children any favors by providing another of something that they have abused and broken. It's uh, lost because they didn't take care of it. You do them a favor by making them do without so that they'll learn to be more grateful for what they have. Some of the best lessons a kid will learn is to have to do without because he didn't take care of what he had. But let me add that this needs not to be taken too far either. There's a tendency with some people to impoverish themselves by being overly diligent to save. (laughs) There is a lack of faith that says, we had better keep this because we might need it someday. When keeping it means that you have a, a cluttered house that is unpleasant to live in. Why not give it to the mission mart? Or why not give it to a friend that might need it and could use it? And then there are those who are so fussy about taking care of their possessions that they can't enjoy it. You know, you go to their home and it's like a showcase that you can't touch anything. You have to, you have to sit like this and hope that you don't break anything while you're there. Now, of course, we have to be careful about judging each other because we can go too far in any of these ways. And we're different from each other. There are some people that are going to have a house that's way more of a showcase. And we should be careful and we should appreciate the beauty and the order that they have in their home. So other people that everything's free and flexible and you might be kind of cringing when you see you know, the wall getting punched or, or whatever might be going on in the house. But we, we need to be we need to have some flexibility there. But these principles are at the, they they structure our lives that that in gratitude we take care of what we have and in gratitude we also are not so fussy with what we have that, that we don't even enjoy what God has given us. And so besides obtaining wealth by labor, there is, we've seen just now, also preserving wealth by labor. But labor is by no means the only thing. Labor for wealth should always be accompanied, both for preserving and obtaining it, labor for wealth should always be accompanied by sincere prayer for wealth. You are to pray for God's provision because He is the one who gives us the power to get wealth, providing us with work and with the strength to do our work, or in some cases providing for us when we can't work through the means He's appointed in that way. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. The Lord teaches us that this should be an ordinary part of our prayers, praying for wealth. When when He taught His disciples to pray, He taught them to say, Matthew 6.11, Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that it is our daily bread that we ask for, something we pray for daily. It's often been said and well said, to work and not pray is atheism. To pray and not work is presumption. 
So work and prayer go together. We don't have one. We shouldn't never have one without the other. Now we've looked at two rules for enjoying our material possessions and the overall structure of what we've seen so far. First, that we must learn to recognize material things, that they are a blessing from God. And secondly, that we are to require and maintain the things that we have by labor and prayer. Thirdly, if we would properly enjoy the material gifts of God, we must learn to be content with what He has given to us. Obviously, you can't enjoy what God has given you if you don't think He's given you enough. You're not going to ever be thankful. You have to trust Him with this and quit complaining and fretting about what you don't have. If you're diligently laboring and praying for your daily bread, believe that God has given you what is best for you, for best for you that you might serve Him and know Him. Having more would hinder you. Having less would hinder you. Be content with what God has given you. 1 Timothy 6, 8-9 gives us this wise counsel. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. This is not a prohibition against riches, but a prohibition against making a god or an idol out of riches, making our goal in life the acquisition of riches. The problem occurs when you lose sight of God's glory as your chief end and make riches your chief end. Then you start looking to God as if His purpose is to supply you with riches. That's what God is for. That's what you begin to look at Him like that. God gives you riches not as an end in themselves, but in order that you might give thanks to Him and share with others. When you turn things around, you don't have your heart set on God anymore. You are not able to delight yourself in the Lord. Your relationship with God dries up because you have lost Him as your first love. If He's not the first love, then He's not on the list. Like you have put God in the wrong place and you are not honoring Him. It has been well said, the man who is not content is always poor, no matter how much he may have. A man that has a little bit is not content, he's poor. A man that has a whole lot and he's not content because he always wants a little bit more, that man is poor too. He's always discontent because he always considers himself as lacking. He's poor in that way. Consider if you always say, if I only had a little bit more, it indicates that you are never satisfied with what you actually have. So you're not actually ever enjoying what you have because there always needs to be a little bit more. Most people think that if they had 20% more, they'd be quite well off. And then as soon as they get 20% more, then they want 20% more again in a very short time. At first they think, oh, I got a raise. This is going to be great. We're going to freedom, freedom. We're going to have everything we want now. And just give it a little bit of time. You'll be right back in the same boat. If that's the way you live, you'll be right back in the same place. Get a little bit more, it will be just a short time. You know how that is. It's so true. Furthermore, if you eat too much or drink too much or watch too many movies, it shows that you're not really enjoying the food or the drink or the movies. Why? Well, it takes very little to make a grateful man thankful. 
but an ungrateful man is always thinks he has to have a little bit more before he can really be thankful. He's not really got enough. He's not really satisfied yet. Even when he's eating a wonderful meal, he's thinking about having more. <laughs> That's, he always has to, to suck more out of it. That's why people, when they turn to drugs or something, then you know, they, they start out and they, they, oh, this feels good. And then they, a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. They, they, never, they aren't giving thanks. You see, they're just, they're just looking for something that is evasive, that they never really get what, they're, what they want. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 15 through 16 warns us about setting our hearts on the world. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Jesus told us you cannot have two masters. Once there is a conflict between one master and the other, the one who is your real master is the one that will always win out. Question, what is it that makes a person a slave to the things in the world? Answer, you become a slave to things when your life is oriented around serving those things and are serving to get those things instead of serving God. Even a person who is truly a slave to men is not a slave at all if his ultimate purpose is to glorify God because he is always able to do what he desires to do, glorify God, no matter what his situation is, no matter how much he has. But if you're living to attain a certain amount of wealth or, or that sort of thing, then you're not able to, to, uh, to really be happy and to glorify God. If all your thoughts are focused on what you have to do to get more money instead of how you can please God, money is your master. Part of pleasing God involves procuring wealth. But it is in your service to Him that you are to do this, not as an end in itself. In other words, I'm doing things for other people in service to God to glorify Him and honor Him, and I receive payment and wealth out of that, but I'm doing all of it to the glory of God, not just to get what I want. If you start breaking the Sabbath for the sake of increasing your wealth or cutting your tithe or refusing to help those in need, then you're serving money instead of God. You are a thief and you won't ever be thankful and enjoy what God has given you. Don't love the world, but rather love the one who made the world. That's the idea here. Romans 1.25 condemns those who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, the created things, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. It all comes from Him. Remember that. When you forget that, it destroys your worship of God because the object of your worship has changed from God to the things. The focus is on the things without God rather than the things from God so that you worship God. When discontentment becomes your mindset, you fall into an adversarial relationship with God. In other words, it sets you against God. It's like you're fighting with Him to get more instead of rejoicing in what He and His wise providence has given you, rejoicing in His gifts. You are trying to manipulate Him to get what you want the way Israel did in the wilderness. In Psalm 106, 15, it says that He gave them according to their request, but sent leanness to their souls. This is a terrible thing. 
Covetousness makes us lean in our souls. It makes us less human. It eats away your soul. You look at God and other people only as tools to further your wealth. You want to get something from them. That's why they exist. So you can get something from them. Same thing that we saw with lust. It eats away your soul. So does covetousness for material things. What's more, this puts you in a place of major insecurity because you're contending with God. Competing with God is never a comfortable spot to be in. You're anxious about what you have or don't have because you didn't trust God to obtain it and you don't know whether he's going to take it away and how awful it'd be if he took it away and if I lost it, you're all, ah, because you're not trusting him. It's not about him. It's about what you have or don't have. God is there to give you what you have or don't have rather than you trust him, that you serve him with whatever he chooses to give you. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, 24. I'll read this whole passage to you, 24 through 32. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. So it's either the the money or it's God in this case, or, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, people that don't know God. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So you see, God delights in giving you these things, all these things. You need to trust Him to give you just exactly what is best, and give thanks for whatever that is. Discontentment also leads to the use of unlawful means to provide, to pro, that provoke God and destroy your relationship with Him. When Ahab continued to eye Naboth's vineyard, it soon led to murder and theft in order to get it. He was not happy with what the Lord had appointed for him, So he disobeyed God to get what God had not appointed for him. Likewise, when Achan eyed the spoils of war, it led to taking what God had claimed as his own. God put those things under the ban that Achan took, and yet Achan took them for himself, what was dedicated to God. Wealth acquired in these ways is certainly not wealth that one enjoys before God. It is well stolen. It is well stolen. Well stolen destroys you. Stolen wealth destroys you. 
how much better it is to rejoice in the wealth that God has actually given you, that you have obtained in a right way. Rejoice in the work of your hands before Him with thanksgiving. Make it your prayer to be able to say with Psalm 90, verse 17, Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God tells us very plainly that He will curse us if we do not joyfully receive His bounty. This is a very important verse related to this. Deuteronomy 28, 47 says that the curse will come. Why? This refers to what I was talking about with nations falling, Christian nations falling. The curse will come because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Many families in our community who once served God have been cut off from Him over the generations for this very reason. They worshipped the abundance instead of serving God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance. There's a huge difference. Worshipping the abundance or worshipping God for the abundance. God does not forbid possessing an abundance. He forbids worshipping the abundance instead of worshiping Him for the abundance. Over the years, I have come to believe that this is a much bigger deal than we think it is. It's one of the main reasons for the apostasy that we see in so many Christian nations. This is not something to brush off. This is something that needs repentance. You see, over the years, we turn away from God because we don't rejoice in what He's given us. And he says, and we read it in Deuteronomy 8 as well, that he's going to curse us if we do not re- receive from his hand and give thanks to what he has given to us. But take heart, in Jesus Christ, there is complete forgiveness for this sin and any other sin if we bring it before him. Complete forgiveness for the sin of worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. You do not need to despair. Only turn to the Lord Jesus who died for your sin and who lives to impart new life to you in accordance with God's ways. Then by grace you will learn to serve God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. And just look at all of the things that God has given you. Aren't they delightful? Think of all the things that you have in your possession. Give thanks and rejoice for the abundance that you have. That's what you need to start doing. That will please Him. Please stand and let's call on His name. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You for the abundance of all the things that You have given us. We pray that we would receive them with joy and gladness of heart. We know, Lord, that with material things, we can quickly see how we're off in the way of the discontent one. We look at other people that have more. We don't look much at people who have less. We look at people always who have more, and we think about what we don't have that they have. And we go on in our lives grumbling and complaining and feeling that we've been mistreated and and, and not ever really thankful for what we have received. We pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on us and that you would forgive us. It's such a terrible way for us to live. 
We have a God who is so kind to us. We're fallen creatures and yet we have food and clothing and we have so many other things. And we pray, Lord, that we would realize that we're not worthy of even the least of these mercies that you have given us and that we would receive them. We know that someone in hell is, would be just delighted with, with a cup of cold water. Father, it's something that we have every day. And what a wonderful thing it is to have a cup of water that we can drink. Father, we thank you that you have been so kind to us. We thank you for the abundance that we have that is so far beyond that. Lord, help us to change our whole attitude in this way that it would be conformed with what is pleasing to you. We pray that we would learn to obtain our wealth in the way that you have appointed for us, that we would labor as we are able. And Father, that we would maintain the things that you have given us as those who are grateful will do. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to to have a true sense of, of gratitude that you would give to us as our Lord and Savior. Please forgive us, Lord, for all of our shortcomings and failings in this. If you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? But Father, we thank you that in Christ we do have cleansing from our sin, but that's not a reason for us to be content to go on in our sin. For you have called us to be holy, and we are miserable if we are not holy. Holiness and happiness go together. The devil will tell us the opposite, that if we're holy, we will never be happy. But Father, the truth is that they go together quite well. And we pray that we would learn this, Lord, in experience and not just in theory. We ask you, O Lord, that you would send us with your blessing this day, that we might honor and glorify you with all the things that we possess. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song of response is the blessing of the living God. May the Lord rescue you and deliver you from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That your sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that your daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style, that your barns may be full supplying all kinds of produce, that your sheep may bring forth thousands and tens of thousands in your fields, that your oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in your streets. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.